Hour good? Yes. <clears throat> Excuse me. All right, so we are uh, at the end of the Lord's Prayer this morning. And uh, I think last week I said I was going to do a separate message on the alternate ending, but I think I'm going to just include it in the end here today. Uh, I will ask you to stand with me at the end and use your voices uh, a little bit. So just, just warning you, don't get too uncomfortable uh, as we do that. The Lord's Prayer, deliver us, Matthew six thirteen. As we consider uh, the Lord's Prayer and we think of how it's, how it's uh, put together, as the Holy Spirit put this prayer together, we see the first three uh, requests at the beginning here, are quest, uh, it's about God and His greatness. We want our Father in heaven, the God of the universe, we want His name to be hallowed. We want Him to be glorified in our lives and in the world around us. And really, this is an evangelistic prayer, right? Those who don't know Jesus Christ are only bringing glory to themselves. So when we pray for God's name to be glorified in the world, we're praying for people to come to faith in Christ and that their lives would be for the glory and praise of God. And really, that ties into the aspect of His kingdom coming. We want God's kingdom to come. Literally, we want His kingdom to be manifest. And, and also, I, I kind of put in that... Uh, the kingdom in the hearts of people, that when we come to faith in Christ, we are transferred from darkness into light, into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. So there is this already not yet aspect, and we're praying for people to know Christ as Lord and Savior as well. But we literally want the kingdom to come. We want righteousness and justice to rule, and we want God's will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven, like it would be in His kingdom, like it is in heaven right now. We want His will to be done in our lives so that His name would be hallowed. So we move from the greatness of God to God's goodness, and we begin to make requests for ourselves in the sense that we want God to meet our daily needs. Give us today our daily bread, that God would provide all that we need to glorify His name here on the face of the earth, that all that we need to fulfill the Great Commission, that God would provide that for us. And certainly that includes things like bread and water, right? It's an argument of the lesser to the greater. He's going to provide all things. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. And last week, we saw the other need that we have, right? We have needs for daily provision, but we also have a need for forgiveness of sins. God, forgive us our debts. We have not loved you and loved others as we ought to love them. We have a a love debt that we owe. Please take that away. And the moment you come to faith in Christ, that love debt is removed, But as we live on this earth as Christians, this journey of faith, we sin. We don't love others as we should. And so on a daily basis, we confess our sins to God. God, I have not loved as I ought to love. Forgive me my debts. Forgive us our debts. And then we need to forgive others as they sin against us, as they don't love us as they are called to love, as they don't love God as they should love God. We see here the final request here. In verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, some of your translations, your versions of the Bible may have just evil, deliver us from evil. Uh, and that's, that's fine. They're both interwoven. I think the way it's written, uh, the better way to understand it is the evil one. Uh, deliver us from the evil one, from Satan from his demons, from all that he's orchestrating in the world. 
So let's pray and ask God to bless our time together. Father, we thank you so much for your word and the truth of your word, and thank you that you care enough to teach us how to pray, that you invite us into your presence, and you teach us how to pray in such a way that you are glorified and that you are honored with our lives. You teach us to pray in such a way that we have joy, uh, that we have abundant lives here on this earth as we live in a sin-cursed world. This morning, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes, that you would teach us what you would have us to learn so that we can love you better and love others better. Matthew 6, 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The moment we come to faith in, faith in Christ, we have a spiritual battle on our hands, right? Paul talks about the battle that's within the flesh wars against the spirit. The moment you come to faith in Christ, God comes to live within you. You have, as it is, as it were, a divine nature. You have a new nature, but you also have an old nature. We call it the flesh, and its proclivity is, its desire is to sin. And so there's this battle waging within you. There's this war within you. There's also this war on the outside of us, right? They have this war, this, these, the influence of the world. We have the influence of of the pressure of trials of life, the tests of life. Uh, we also have Satan as he is attacking us, as the demonic forces of this world are attacking those who are seeking to bring glory to God. So Connor Christian, as he lives the Christian life, he desires to live righteously. He wants to fight, fight temptation. He wants to escape in evil influences. He wants to overcome overwhelming opposition, right? This is who we all are as Christians. There is a war going on. We are in a battle, and we want to win. We want to overcome, and so Jesus teaches us today how to do that, but we have to realize there is an ever-present enemy. There are ever-present enemies. As we consider the biblical narrative and we consider the opposing forces, those forces opposed to God. We have Satan, the evil one, and there is sin, evil, and they are constantly seeking to overthrow God and destroy his creation. Satan wants to destroy the image of God in you. You see this so graphically in the work that Kristen and I do, the image of God being destroyed in people slowly and surely as their hearts are more and more calloused, as their bodies waste away because of sin. But as we consider the opposing forces in the world, the evil that wants to overcome us, we began at the very beginning, right in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve in the garden. And there's this conversation going on between Eve and the serpent. Isn't it funny they had any, any tree in the garden they could have possibly wanted? The serpent didn't have to come looking for them. He was sitting there at the tree, and they came to him. For God knows that when you eat from it, the fruit, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see, heretofore they had only known good, and Satan tricked them. He deceived them. There's knowledge that you don't have, and God doesn't want you to have that knowledge because God doesn't want you to be like him, and so he keeps this from you. God was trying to protect them? Yes. But you'll know good and evil. And of course, we know the way the story goes. They chose to rebel against God. They ate from the fruit of that tree of the knowledge of 
good and evil, and sin and death and evil entered into the world. And so we see the evil is anything that's opposed to God and His Word, seeking to overthrow God and destroy His creation. So we're going to look at evil, and we're going to look at the evil ones, so we better understand, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is review for most of you, the evil one, Satan, the devil, Lucifer. The word Lucifer isn't really in the Bible, but he's referred to as in Isaiah, uh, this light being. Lucifer, the angel of light, the prince of the power of the air, etc. There's many, many names, the same personality, the devil, Satan. Now, I, I don't have a slide up for this, but you understand Satan is localized, this angel that rebelled against God and led other angels into rebellion, he's localized. He's a created being. He can't be everywhere all the time in the fullness of his being. He's not God, and he's localized. But there are many, many, many demons. So I think sometimes when we say, you know, Satan is really attacking me, we're probably, you know, the, the forces of evil in the world, demonic forces, okay? I mean, it could be you're so important that it's Satan himself, okay? Um, but... We're talking about those in opposition to God that are supernatural, spiritual beings. And as we consider history, right, as we look at, if we, if we think of history uh, from the beginning to now to in the future, we can look at different layers of history, right? We have human history. It had a definite beginning, and it doesn't necessarily have a definite end, but it will. There'll be an end of the age, if you will, so I have two points on the end, okay? But, but, the devil, he was created. There's the beginning of the devil. And he, he was created good, but he rebelled against God. All right, so we have all of human history, the rise and fall of nations, and we have this, this underlying narrative, this meta-narrative of good against evil. Satan and his followers against God and his children. Satan and his children against God and his children. Yes, those who aren't children of God are children of Satan, Scriptures tell us. Well, then we have this another layer of this meta-narrative as we look at scriptural, uh, the scriptural narrative that God brings about the line of the Messiah. The very beginning, God says, you know, one is going to come forth from the one, the seed of the woman will crush the head of Satan, the serpent. And then we have this other layer of God's plan of redemption. But from beginning to end, there's evil. And we have to deal with that. The story of good against evil. So this evil one, Satan, we read in 1 John 5 that he is controlling the entire world. We know that we are children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. Does that mean that God is any less sovereign? No. Well, you know from Job's, the story of Job, that Satan has to come to God to get permission to do things. But God has given Satan this dominion of the world. So I would say, yes, this spherical globe that we're on, but also this world system that we have to live and function in, that he is controlling all of it, and he is an enemy to God's people. We'll come back to this verse later. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour and destroy. So he controls the world. He is an enemy of God's people. He wants to destroy them. And those in the world that are not of God are controlled by this being, Satan. 
Sometimes people think that's kind of harsh to say. You mean the people? That person is so loving and so kind, but they don't know Christ. You're telling me that they are under the, under the control of Satan? And I'm saying, yes, that's what Scripture says. Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and what the ruler of the kingdom of the air, another name for Satan, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Right? So you're trying to live for Christ. Right? You're trying to follow his commands. You want to glorify God and you have this sin nature that you're struggling against. Okay? And you have Satan who is in op- and his demons who are in opposition to you. And you have all the people in the world controlled by Satan who don't like God, who are rebelling against God, and don't like your righteous life, and would like to see you live differently because they don't feel bad about their sin. They're opposed to you. Very specifically, those who are controlled by Satan, they manifest certain characteristics. And we see this given to us in Paul's interaction with Elimus. The sorcerer. And Paul says this about Elimus. You're a child of the devil. You are one. You're an enemy of everything that's right. Satan is opposed to everything that is right. God is a standard of righteousness. Satan is opposed to God. Those who are of Satan are opposed to everything that is right. Satan is the deceiver. Those who are children of the devil are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. And they do like Satan. They take the good things that God has created, the beautiful things that God has created, and they pervert them, and they twist them for their own purposes, and they distort them. They take the beautiful things of God, and they can make them very, very ugly. Will you never stop perverting the right ways of the Lord? Right. So we see the opposition that we face from this evil one, from Satan and his demons, all those that followed Satan and his rebellion against God. And the force that's interacting with them is this force, this evil. We call it evil. It's an opposing force to God. It's sin, right? And and it characterizes all of humanity. Every person ever born has a tendency towards, a primary tendency towards, I say proclivity towards, evil, Right? As God was getting ready to judge the earth with a flood, he looks out on the world and he says, this is what characterizes creation. It's not a bunch of smiling, cute people. It's evil people. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. That's a pretty strong statement. And this evil has no limitation, right? The psalmist says this, from their callous hearts come iniquity, their evil imaginations have no limit. And this evil that entered into the world that has affected the human heart still affects our hearts, right? That's one of the things in Scripture that's a tension, right? If anyone is in Christ, he's the new creation. Behold, all the old things have passed away, all things are new. But we know clearly from God's Word that we still have a sin nature. And that sin nature wants to destroy us. It wants us to turn away from God. It wants us to oppose God. And so we have to realize that sin is always trying to influence us. And that's really the point here. 
as followers of Christ. Sin wants to destroy you. Sin doesn't sleep. It always is there seeking to destroy you. In the story of Cain and Abel, God's talking to Cain. He says, look, if you do what's right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, then sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Sin wants to have you. It wants to destroy you. And Paul tells about it, talks about it like this in Romans as he laments his life. Right, Romans chapter 7, verses 15 and on really is Paul's life as a Christian, I believe. And he's talking about this struggle that we all find that's real within us, this war that's waging within us. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do anyway. Oh, help me. Do you guys ever feel that way? Please say yes. Tell me I'm not alone. Okay, I live in that world. And Paul says, you know why you feel that way? He says, look, there's this law at work, this law of sin. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. Every millisecond of your existence, evil is there with you. It wants to have you. It wants to destroy you. It's waging war against you. Right, and here's the twisted part. In my inner being, I delight in the law. Right, I had great devotions this morning. It was it was such a great morning. I was praising God in my heart, and I was so wonderful, and I was so close to the throne of God in my prayers. It was so beautiful. I delighted in the law of God, and then I went to work. And I saw that other law within me waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. Is that word prisoner? One preacher I was listening to, uh, Colin Smith. If you ever listened, it's called Open the Bible. Guy's a great preacher. He's got a cool Scottish accent, too. It really kind of goes together well. Colin Smith, Open the Bible. And he uses this example. Here's the picture of you. You are chained to a wall in a dark dungeon in the depths of a castle. And you're blind. And there's nothing you can do for yourself. Because that's how you have to picture yourself as you fight sin. So we're told... Deliver us from the evil one, God. Only you can do this. There's this war going on. I have to have you working in my life, Father, please. And so Paul, or so Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So the point, the first point is, is the, the reality of Satan and his desires to destroy you and the reality of sin crouching at your door always. The battle is real. That's the first point. There is a reality that we must take into consideration and not dismiss because as soon as we begin to dismiss that reality, that is when we set ourselves up for failure in the midst of a trial. So as we look at this particular prayer, there's a misunderstood meaning. A misunderstood meaning, right? We see the ever-present enemy, but now we see the misunderstood meaning, right? Jesus says, and lead us not into temptation, right? And so, so why would God lead me into temptation? 
I think that's a legitimate question. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't seem right because as we define temptation, temptation is an enticement to sin, right? And Connor says, look, life is hard enough. I don't need God tempting me to sin. Is that what's really being prayed here? God, my loving Heavenly Father. I mean, just think about it in practical terms. What loving parent would entice their kid to sin? No, we wouldn't do that. So, There must be something else being said here, right? And the passage that we always go to when we think about this this prayer is in James chapter 1. And in James chapter 1, James says this, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. All right, so this is why we have to understand the analogy of faith, right? Scripture interprets Scripture. We can't just look at a verse on its own in a vacuum. We have to understand God's Word, what it says in tote. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, right? He's, he's perfect, perfectly holy. As Habakkuk says, there's no uncleanness or anything unholy can enter into God's sight, into his presence. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. So how is it that we're tempted? If God doesn't do it, what is the primary way that we're tempted? Well, the primary way we're tempted is that old rascally flesh, that sin nature that's within us, right? We can't default to the flip, Wilson, the devil made me do it kind of thing. No, he says, but each person when tempted, I'm sorry, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed, right? The definition of temptation that I gave you is an enticement to sin. Then after uh, desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Right? We can relate to this in our own struggle against sin. Really, James is reflecting back on Adam and Eve, and Eve, you know, she sees what's going on, and, and she's kind of carried away into the sin. I get the, the distinction that Eve didn't have a sin nature at the time, but the, the process is the same. So we are tempted, not by God, but by our own evil desires. We are enticed and drawn away by that. So the confusion really comes in the way you use this word tempted. And the word tempt and the word trial are the same word in the original language. The word tempt and the word trial are the same word in the original the Greek language, the, the, the language the Bible is written. And so when you read it, you have to read it in context and compare it with other passages in the Bible, right? So if you just read the King James Version of James chapter 1, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. It, we don't count it joy when we fall into enticements to sin, right? In, in chapter uh, 1, verse 2, that's what he says. Count it all joy when we fall into diverse temptations. No, it's trial. We have to take it into context. And then down to verse 13, let no man say when he is tempted, when he's enticed to sin, that I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither is neither tempteth he any man. Right? So again, that word trial, test, temptation, there's a Greek word for you, Jason. Okay. It's they're the same Greek word, but the context determines what it means in the text. A good way to look at that word. The first word up there, trial, temptations, is to go into the Old Testament and see that God is constantly leading us, not constantly, God does 
in his wisdom and his sovereign plan, lead us into trials to test our heart to see if we're going to obey him. Deuteronomy chapter 8, remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you. You might be saying, well, Jay, the Old Testament wasn't written in Greek, it was written in Hebrew. Yeah, but there's this version of the Bible called the it's called the Septuagint, and it is the Greek version of the Old Testament that was written in Hebrew, and in the Greek, the word for test is parasmos. Okay, so that's why we have to understand this is a test or a trial. Okay, so let's look at this because this, this has bearing on the next point. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test. To humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger. That was the trial, the hunger, and feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, but to teach you that man does not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. So does God tempt us? Does God entice us to sin? No, he does not. God does not do that. James tells us that. Does God lead us into trials to test us? Well, absolutely he does, and this is an example of that. So God does not tempt us, but he does orchestrate trials to test and strengthen our faith. So as you look at your life, here are kind of the Christians trying to think through this. If you think, if you think through your own life, right? You have trials in your life that are ordained by God. They come in different forms to us. And so as you enter into this trial, a decision is to be made. You have a faith test. Inherent in any trial or test is the possibility of sin. Inherent in trials are temptations from within, our sin nature, and then from without, okay, the influence of the world and of Satan. And so when you are taken into a trial by God, you have a decision to make. Are you going to trust and obey? Or are you going to lust and disobey? Trust and obey leads to life. Lust and disobey leads to death. And so Jesus says to us, he says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil. And God, don't lead us into temptation. Don't, don't lead us into a trial and leave us there to the point where we are enticed to sin and we fail. We don't obey your commands. So as we pray this prayer every day and lead us not into temptation, we pray it because we all face trials of similar kinds as a part of life in a sin-cursed world. We pray this, we should be praying this every day because we're all facing trials. And you may think that your trial is unique to you and there may be particular aspects, but Scripture tells us that temptation, that the trials that come into our life are common to, to people. And so 1 Corinthians 10 is a very good text to go to when you are considering the temptations that may come your way in the midst of trials. 1 Corinthians 10.13 No temptation or trial has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. Right, So we're all a part of humanity, sons and daughters of Adam. We all have a sin nature. I'm hoping most of you have the divine nature as well, Okay, that you are born-again believers. You're all going to face trials, and they are trials of similar kinds. 
So when you're overtaken, don't be overwhelmed thinking, I'm the only one who has ever lived who's ever had this kind of trial. Well, Scripture says no. So pray daily in the midst of the trial because trials come, but trials are common. We pray daily, lead us not into temptation because God is faithful. That's why he calls us to pray to him. Come to me and pray. I want you to pray. And I'm faithful. I give good gifts. I don't change. And in the text here, in verse 13, no temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind. And And God is faithful. God is faithful. He's faithful and he's always protecting us. He's always there. He's always with us. He's always protecting us. And he will not let you be tempted or tried beyond what you can bear. As God leads you into the trial, he's not going to break you in the trial. If you ask him, he will empower you to obey him in the midst of the trial so that when temptation comes from within or from without, you choose to obey. You trust and obey. You have life. We pray daily, lead us not into temptation because the trials we face are complicated by temptations arising from the flesh, which we cannot overcome alone. In the text again, but when you are tempted, when you are tried and tempted, you need to come to God. He will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. They are complicated. They cannot be overcome on your own. So when you enter into a trial, you have to make a decision. Trial comes. You don't go to your your unbelieving friend for advice. You go to God's Word. You don't want worldly wisdom. You want heavenly wisdom. You want wisdom from the Word of God. You go to God's Word and to godly people to get wisdom so that you make decisions in the midst of the trial so that you trust and obey. And that begins through prayer. Because as we pray, God is faithful. He will provide whatever is needed. He will provide a way of escape. He'll provide a way out so that you can endure the trial. So when we come before God and we pray, do not lead us into temptation. We're not saying God don't lead us into trials. Trials are how we grow. We're saying, God, don't abandon us in the midst of the trial. God, don't leave us in that trial to the point where we are enticed by sin and we fail. Kevin DeYoung says this, Notice the Lord's Prayer does not say, Father, do not tempt me. That's a holy and necessary prayer. Rather, it says, do not lead me into temptation. That means do not allow me to be near the allure of sin. God, please keep me from those enticements in the world, those sinful things in the world that will cause me to turn away from you and disobey your commands. Do not bring me near the devil. Do not permit me to be in a situation where enticement to sin will be greater than I can bear. That's the prayer. In the yellow right there. Do not permit me to be in a situation where the enticement to sin is greater than I can bear. That's what Jesus is teaching us to pray. D.A. Carson says it more succinctly, lead us not into temptation, but away from it. Into righteousness, into situations far from being tempted. We'll be protected and therefore kept righteous. 
So the beginning of the prayer, do not lead us into temptation. God, do not, do not leave me in this trial so long that I am going to sin. God, please provide that way of escape. You've promised to do that. I need that way of escape. We've seen the misunderstanding, but now we see the divine deliverance. And this is the second part of the prayer. And lead us not into temptation, but what? Deliver us from the evil one. So as we consider this battle that we're facing in a sin-cursed world, as we seek to live for Christ and for His glory, right? We've looked at the trials and tests and the temptations involved. That God is faithful. He will provide a way of escape. We need to come to Him and ask Him. We've seen that there's an internal pressure in the midst of these trials, the flesh, our sin nature. But there's also the pressure of the world and the evil one. And that's the second part of the prayer. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So if I pray for deliverance, that's it. Nothing else needs to be done, right? God, I've asked you to deliver me. I don't need to do anything else, God. I've prayed my prayer. Now, when I use the example of the person chained down in a dungeon in the darkness in the bottom of a castle and they're blind and they can't do anything, I'm not saying just let go and let God. I'm saying the nature of the condition that we're in is that if God doesn't work, we're not going to be delivered. But there is something that you can do. There is something that we must do as we pray the prayer, deliver us from the evil one. Ultimately, ultimately all deliverance is from God. But he expects you to do your part. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it's God who is at work in you, both to will and to do for his pleasure. God delivers us as we submit to him and resist the work of the evil one. So you need to resist the work of the evil one. There's got to be some resistance here. That's why I don't like that bumper sticker, let go and let God. I get it, okay. But friends... The Christian life is hand-to-hand combat, and you're going to lose quite a few battles. The enticement to sin will be more than you, you just won't overcome it sometimes, okay? So there has to be a resistance, and that's why in James chapter 4 we see our part, right, is we want to be delivered from the evil one, right? James says this, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he, the devil, will flee from you. So as we look at this second part of the prayer, deliver us from the evil one, I want to focus on what we need to do as we pray this prayer. And first we see Jesus' example, right? It's the classic example that we go to, Jesus in the wilderness, right? So look at how Matthew 4 is set up. And Jesus was led, in, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus isn't the only one who's led into the wilderness. We're led into the wilderness as well by God and His providence. He underwent a trial, and the devil, God doesn't tempt, right? But the devil here was tempting Jesus, right? As you look at Matthew chapter 4, we understand that Jesus underwent temptation from this external force, right? The devil, right? And that's how Jesus' temptations are different than ours, right? Jesus never had a sin nature. He never had a sin nature. He didn't have that internal pressure, but Jesus had the external pressure of trials and Satan and the demons. 
pressing on him. And so Satan tempts Jesus with pleasure, pride, and power, right? In verses 3 and 4, Jesus was very hungry. Turn these stones to bread. How did Jesus respond to that temptation? He brought Scripture to bear. Man does not live by bread alone, but from every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus, Jesus, show them who you are, right? You're really the Son of God. Prove it to everybody. Jump from this high precipice, jump from the top of this building. And if you really are, you are, and people are going to see that. Just imagine what people are going to say about kinds of good, great things about you. Are you really the Son of God? If you are, then God will protect you. And Jesus says, no. I'm going to submit to the Word of God. The Word of God says, do not test. And there was this concept of power. Satan shows them all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus, all these kingdoms. I know, I know what God's Word says, that one day everything's going to belong to you. But guess what? In God's plan, you have to die on the cross. In my plan, you just bow your knee to me, and I'll give it everything to you. The power. The kingdoms of the world. How did Jesus resist? Through Scripture. Worship God alone. You see, James, as he draws from Jesus here in James chapter 4, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. What does it say at the end of chapter 4? Then the devil left. Jesus submitted himself to the will of the Father. I mean, Jesus is fully divine, right? We, we learned that first service. I mean, Jesus could have called down thousands upon thousands of angels, 12 legions of angels to come down and just smite Satan right at that moment. He could have just spoken a word, and it would have completely obliterated Satan. But Jesus' very food was to do the will of the one who sent him. He knew he had a mission he was on. He had to submit his will to the will of the Father in the midst of the trial, believing that what God had for him was better than that very moment. Isn't that the problem in trials? Oh, God, it would be so much easier if I could just give in at this moment. I mean, I need that. We have to submit ourselves to the Word of God, trusting and believing, and the devil will flee. And, and friends, the, the spiritual influence is real. We tend to minimize that. And again, I'm not Flip Wilson. I'm not like the d- deliverance ministries where you have to like get the right verse and cast that very, that very demon out, okay? I don't believe in that. But I'm saying, we're going to see in a minute, that it's real and we have to fight it. So at the end of Jesus' life, right, we go from the wilderness, we go into a garden, right? And Jesus is praying. He's on his knees in the garden. God, if it's possible, if this cup can be taken from me, You don't think that there were temptations from Satan at that moment just to abandon everything? Yet not as I will, but as you will. He submitted himself to the will of the Father. Well, his disciples were there. What did he tell them to do? Watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. Watch. See the world as I see it. See the world through the eyes of Scripture. Submit yourself to the will of the Father. Watch the will of the Father and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee to you, flee from you. Oh, we have Peter's exhortation. And Peter's exhortation is interesting. I had to throw a line in there today because of the game, right? 
But in 1 Peter 5, we, we looked at that verse earlier. Peter is dealing with people who are in the midst of trials. They're suffering for their faith. The government doesn't like them. The government's killing them. They're suffering for the cause of Christ. And Peter says, be alert and of sober mind. The concept of being of sober mind is being filled with the Spirit. It's being filled with, with Christ, the mind of Christ. It's being filled with the Word of God. That's how you're sober-minded, friends, is knowing God's Word, because then you see the world accurately. The world is not your friend. The world wants to destroy you. Satan wants to destroy you. You see that clearly because you have a biblical mindset. So as you see clearly, understand your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. How often do we treat sin nicely, thinking we can handle it? It's okay this time. I might, I've got some Christian liberty here, and I can do this, and it's all right. You know. They're having fun. No, we don't cozy up with the one who wants to destroy our soul. No, he says, no, be alert and of sober mind. Why? Because your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. He says, no, stand firm, resist him. Submit yourself to the will of God. Stand firm because you know the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of suffering. So here we have Peter saying the same thing as James. Submit yourselves to the will of God, to the word of God. That's how you become sober-minded, friends. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Well, Paul's encouragement, I'm trying to move forward quickly now, Paul's encouragement as Paul says, resist the devil, he's like, look, understand, the devil has schemes. The devil wants you to fall, and he's scheming. And this is the reality of the spiritual darkness that's in the world in Ephesians chapter 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Well, how do you do that? You submit to God. Understand that he has the power, right? In verse 10, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Deliver us from the evil one. So we submit to God. We recognize that he has the power to deliver us, that he has the provision that we need to be delivered, right? He says, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes, right? That put on the full armor of God. God has given us what we need, right? If we go down to verses 14 through 17, we see that full armor of God. But he says there's something you have to do. You have to put it on. You have to put on the armor of God. That's why I'm big about doing your devotions in the morning. I'm dogmatic about it. I think it just makes sense if you're going to start your day and you've got to go out and live in a sin-cursed world and you've got to fight the spiritual balance. You've got to fight. You need to have God's Word in your mind at the beginning of the day. Well, I'm a night person. I do better at night. I get that. You need to start reading your Bible in the morning. I'm just saying that's my exhortation as a pastor. I'm not dogmatic about it. But see, you need to start out in the Word of God. Blessed is the one who meditates on God's law, what, day and night. So all the time. But we have to put on that full armor of God, right? The, the belt of truth, the belt, breastplate, breastplate of righteousness, the gospel shoes, the shield of faith. 
with which we extinguish what? The arrows, the flaming arrows of the evil one, right? The helmet of salvation, what? And the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. How do you put on the full armor of God? You read your Bible. Why? Because our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Now, he's not saying that we don't have any struggle against people in the world. But I've already told you that the people of the world who are outside of Christ are children of the devil, and he controls them. And he can do it in insidious ways, in ways that may seem like that person he's controlling is being very nice to you, but they could be leading you down the path of destruction because the devil has schemes. So for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities and powers of this dark world, the spiritual forces of what? Of evil. Of evil. In the heavenly realms. To be sober-minded, we have to live in the reality that there are spiritual forces of evil that want to destroy you, that want to destroy this church, that want to destroy the work of God in this world. And we have to pray accordingly. Deliver us from the evil one. He continues, he says, Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, right? And look at that. And after you... Listen, you have done everything to stand, right? Remember I said, only God can deliver you, but there's something you have to do. Sounds like it's contradictory. But remember what Paul says. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out, but understand that God has to work in you both to will and to do. So you do what you need to do. You put on the full armor of God, and then he says, and pray in the Spirit, Now, he's not talking about some mumbo-jumbo spiritual language here that only God can understand. No, praying in the Spirit. It's the Spirit in contrast, the Spirit of God in contrast to the Spirit of the dark world. So you're praying in the power of the Spirit of God with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and keep praying all for the Lord's people, for all the Lord's people. So we've seen the example of Jesus, Peter, of Paul, and so we watch and we pray because Jesus says, watch and pray so that you will not be led into temptation. So you won't fall to temptation. So we watch and we pray, lead us not into temptation, but away from it, into righteousness, into situations where far from being tempted, we will be protected and therefore kept righteous. So we watch and pray, God, deliver us from the one who wants to destroy us, the church and his kingdom. So we pray the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. So we're going to stand before we sing Ancient of Days. And I like this song. It's a beautiful song based on Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7... Daniel's reminded his people, kingdoms are going to come, kingdoms are going to go. These kingdoms are controlled by the dark one, by Satan. But there's a kingdom that is coming, that the Ancient of Days has ordained. And so we pray, your kingdom come. So we're going to stand together and we're going to read the Lord's Prayer together as the, as the music group comes up. When they come up, we're going to read, read this prayer together and then we're going to sing Ancient of days.
All right. Just read with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever. Amen. So now we're going to sing about that kingdom and the one who's going to usher in that kingdom. Amen.